Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask that you would guide us this morning to see um, fear for what it is, uh, to understand uh, this very primal emotion and to see it for what you intended it to be. And I ask that you would uh, fill us with the fear of the Lord, uh, that you would help us by understanding what that is, that you would help us to grow in knowledge and wisdom and in our relationship to you, that you would give us a deep sense of your felt presence uh, so that we may quake at your majesty and delight to fear your name. Thank you. Be with us through Christ our Lord. Amen. So the main passage, there's a couple of passages. I want to jump around to a couple of passages this morning when we're talking about fear. Uh, so one of the main passages I'm, we're going to be in is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. So if you want to open there, that'll be, the, that'll be one of the passages that you want to keep a finger in because we're going to look at that. So fear. It is, in the Bible, a really confusing emotional reality, right? It is the one, on, on the one hand, you've got, uh, it's the, the most common command in the entire Bible. Does anybody know what the most common command in the entire Bible is? Of course, I've already sort of, you know, given it to you. Fe don't fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Um, I, uh, I checked, I, I looked this up years ago, uh, but I, I didn't double check it. Um, but it, I, I'm pretty sure that I double checked this, so don't, you know, triple check me. Uh, there are 365, it occurred, the command to not fear occurs 365 times. That's one command to not fear for every single day of the year. And so this command to not be afraid is vitally important. It's, you, you almost can't open to a page of your Bible and not find some uh, command not to fear, some attempt to banish fear. But on the other hand, verses like Proverbs 9, verse 10, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So before you can know anything, before you can have wisdom, before you can have knowledge, you need the fear of the Lord. So, the, so fear, there's this, uh, this question that you go back and forth on, is fear good? Is fear bad? Am I supposed to be feeling this? And the Bible does clarify those things, those questions. On the one hand, like 1 John 4, 18 says that per perfect love casts out fear. That you have no, that, that in Christ, we have no need to fear God's judgment. And so we have no need to fear. But Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, that the whole goal of sanctification is the perfection of fear. <laughs> 
So I want to help us, I want to look at some passages and fear in the Bible and help us figure out what is going on with this, uh, with this emotion and what are we supposed to feel and, and towards what are we supposed to feel it. So Isaiah chapter 11, this is kind of the capstone of this idea of the fear of the Lord, I think. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So, you know, Sunday school answer, who, who are we talking about here? Jesus, you know, there we go. So he's the, he's the root and the shoot of Jesse. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. And here's six descriptions of this spirit of Yahweh, of the spirit of Yahweh. He's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight, so this branch, his delight, because he's filled with the spirit of the fear of Yahweh, his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what, he, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips it shall uh, kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. All of this power, all of this might, all of this knowledge, all of this wisdom for Jesus begins with what begins with the fear of the Lord. And it's not just, he says, the fear of the Lord is his delight. Now that, that is strange to us, right? Fear and delight don't seem to go together. We try to avoid fear. We don't want to be afraid. So what is different about this kind of fear that it can be Christ's delight? You see, um, the Trinity. Let's look at the Trinity for a second. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says, uh, talking about the Trinity, talking about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the relationship between them and the Spirit is this, is he describes it as the love passing between the Father and the Son. The love and the Father delights in the Son and the Son delights in the Father and there's this Spirit between them that unites them that's constantly flowing between the two of them and that Spirit can be described as the fear of the Lord, as the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. So, Here's a question. Is God, does God experience fear? Does God experience fear? Is it part of God's emotional life? It appears, if you can describe, that it appears that the Lord fears the Lord. <laughs> that the Lord quakes with delight at the sight of the, at the, sight of the Lord that the Father looks on the Son and is so delighted in Him that, 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 he just, that there is a trembling within Him at how much He delights in the Son. And there's a trembling in the Son at how much He delights in the Father. And the Spirit sins between them this trembling delight. And so, 
if that is God's emotional experience of Himself, it can't be a bad thing. See, a lot of us, we want to go, the fear of the Lord is an Old Testament piety kind of thing. That's what you were supposed to do in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's not like that. We know we perfect love casts out fear, that sort of thing. But the fear of the Lord isn't just about judgment, like John says in 1 John. It's about this delight in God. So, But in our culture, we kind of recoil from the very idea of fear as a positive thing, right? Our culture, we live in a world that is getting, that has less and less things, fewer and fewer things to actually be afraid of. Go back in time a thousand years. None of you want to live there. <laughs> Who wants to live in the Middle Ages when there was no antibiotics, when uh, your chances of dying in childbirth were like a toss of the coin, whether you were going to die or the child was going to die? Uh, who wants to go back a thousand years in time? There's much, there was much more to be afraid of back then, but then you read the read what people were writing and thinking about back then, they seemed le much less anxious about their lives. We are, we have much less, we have less and less to be afraid of, but our fear is growing more and more. We're more and more fearful. And to the point to where sort of children growing up today, uh, parents are terrified of what could happen to them. And so they turn into those helicopter parents. You know, they just hover over their children. I got to make sure I'm afraid. Uh, the culture wants to tell me, uh, you know, I want to send my, my eight-year-old daughter out to the van. We live in an apartment complex. She's got something she left in the van. And I'll say, go out to the van and go get it. But because of what the culture has convinced me of, that she might just get kidnapped between here and the door, between the van and the door, I... I I'm afraid to even let her walk out of the apartment. Something about this world is convincing me that we're just surrounded by things to be afraid of and we ought to be afraid. So our culture is telling us to be afraid and this uh, it's creating this generation where on college campuses, I don't know, most of you have very recently graduated from college. So do any of the colleges around here do the safe space thing? It's like, you need, this is the safe space where everybody can go and you know, no one will say anything that offends another person, that sort of thing. That is wildly popular on college campuses these days. Maybe not in Alabama. But this kind of fear and this helicopter parenting and all of this has kind of created a generation of people who can't handle even criticism. They can't handle somebody disagreeing with them. They're, they're beset by anxiety. And now, it's really ironic because it's, it's come along with the rise of atheism in our world. Like, atheism has become the predominant uh, way of thinking about reality in our culture. And you know what atheist philosophers promised at the outset of this sort of atheist revolution? They said, we're going to banish superstition. Religion, Christianity is all about superstition and fear. And when we get rid of it, that's going to banish fear. Technology is going to progress. People are going to get better and better, and we're going to have less and less to be afraid of. And anxiety and fear will be a thing of the past. Now, the philosophers 
who said these sorts of things are all dead now. But if they were alive today to see their, the opposite of their prediction come true, maybe that would have shocked them into reality and, and seeing, oh, banishing religion and Christianity, banishing God is not going to banish fear. It's actually made it worse in God's absence, in the absence of the greater fear. All these little nagging fears become enormous and they become giant monsters that lurk in the darkness and where there's nobody that we can look to and trust who's can, who can overcome the chaos that lies outside the gates. And so we tremble with fear. But the distinction that the Bible wants to make, that I want to help us make, is between the, the Bible does say, don't be afraid. There's a distinction that the Bible wants to make between what I want to call sinful fear and right fear. Now, I want to call it sinful fear, not just uh, one, because it's, it's all fear that is associated with sin. So, sin, uh, fear of sinning, fear of the damage of sin, fear of, fear of sin, fear caused by sin and the results of sin, and all of those things uh, are sinful, and God wants to banish those things from us. But there's a right fear, a right fear, a fear of God that He wants us to have and embrace, and He wants it to become our delight. In Exodus 20, here's another passage I want us to look at really quick. Exodus 20, this is the, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, kind of sets these, these two fears. Moses puts these two kinds of fear, the sinful fear, and this right fear right beside each other. In Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20. So they're at Sinai. So you're an ancient people. You've just been delivered from slavery by this God who crushed the army of the greatest superpower in the world. And you finally get out to this mountain. He's provided water for you in the wilderness and food. And he's taking care of you. And he gets you to this mountain and... For days beforehand, for seven days, Moses says, all right, the Lord says, put up a fence around the mountain so nobody comes near because I'm going to come down. Yahweh's going to come down onto the mountain, and if anybody approaches, they're going to die. If anybody comes near and touches the mountain, you have to stone them to death. Keep everybody back. Now, what about Yahweh coming down in fire and smoke would make you think, hey, I want to go up there. <laughs> you would think just his presence alone of this fiery, you know, you're standing at the bottom of Mount St. Helens when, when it's about to erupt, it's, it's bellowing smoke and fire. Who's going to say, yeah, let's just waltz on up in here. So you, you think, why do you have to put this fence up? Why do you have to give this command? Because at first, there's something attractive about God's glory, about His, His beauty, about His uh, tremendous, majestic nature, and it wants to draw them in. He knows you're going to be drawn to my glory like moths to a flame. 
So he has to set up this barrier. And then he says, at a certain point, what I'm going to do, Moses, is I am going to, there's going to be some trumpets that are going to be blown. And when the trumpets are blown, I want the whole nation to come up onto the mountain. Now, some translations say I want them to come up to the mountain, but in Hebrew, it's really clear that what he's, what he's asking them to do is he's saying, I'm going to summon them. That's what the trumpets are for. I'm going to summon them to come up onto the mountain. And when that happens, now you can come up. You come up on my terms. When I summon you, come up onto the mountain. You're going to need to overcome your fear. So what he does is he comes down on the mountain. They're attracted. They want to go up. They're eager to go up. And then what happens? And God spoke all these words. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he says, have no gods before me. Have no carved images. He's like, this is, he starts to give them the law. He starts to give them instruction about how they're supposed to live. What, does, what, is, what, what are you supposed to be like as a holy nation? Have no gods before me. Don't make any carved images to worship them. Don't take my name. Don't bear my name and let it not affect and change your life. Remember my Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And the voice of Yahweh himself is announcing these commands from the mountain. So when it was just his glory with no moral standard, everybody says, yeah, let's get up there. They got to put up barriers and say, stay back. But then he announces the law. Boom, boom, boom. This is who I am. I am holy. And they start to see, oh, this might be dangerous. It might be dangerous to approach this God. So then, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, verse 18, and the sound of the trumpet. So the trumpet starts to sound. He announces the law. He starts to blow the trumpet. Summon them up. Come up onto the mountain. And the mountain was smoking. And the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And now this, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why? So that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Don't fear because Yahweh your God is testing you to see if you're going to fear Him. Don't be afraid to obey Him. Don't be afraid to come up. Don't be afraid to obey His command. Don't be afraid to pass through what appears to be this veil of death so that you can come up to His presence. Trust that He has made a way and approach with fear and tremble. Come and tremble before Him. He wants to put the fear of Him in you so that it keeps you from sinning. Now, what happens? 
They stand far off. They go, ah, Mo, listen, buddy, uh, we're, not, we're not down for this. Uh, and Moses goes, all right, I'll go up for you. And so he goes up as their representative, and they see Moses walking up the mountain. Just imagine, you're standing there. There's this veil of smoke, and, Mo- and Moses passes up into it, and you're like, he's dead, he's dead, surely he's dead. And that's exactly what they say 40 days later, right? So Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets all these extra instructions. He gets uh, this design for a portable Eden, a new Eden tent, uh, a place where God can dwell in the midst of his people. And while he's up there, 40 days go by, and the people down at the bottom of the mountain, they, they failed the test. Because they didn't go up onto the mountain and see the glory and experience the presence and tremble before God, what do they do? Who knows what happened to this Moses guy? We saw him go up through the smoke, and we're very convinced that we will die, that that is death. We saw him go up. Who knows what happened? He's been gone for 40 days, and he didn't take any food with him. Surely, even even if he somehow survived the fire, even if he somehow survived the smoke, even if he somehow survived in the presence of this holy God, surely would have starved to death by now. There's no hope. We need a new God. We need a God that we can handle. We need a God that we can control. We need a God we can get our eyes around and get our hands around. Aaron, can you make us one of these gods? And, he, and I, I like the way that when Moses comes back down, he describes it. I, I took the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this bull. Out came this, this calf, is what it's often translated. Uh, the word for it is like it's, it's a steer. It's a young, strong, virile bull, you know, a, a bull in its full strength. And it just leapt out of the fire. <laughs> I didn't do it, you know. I didn't spend a couple of days with, uh, you know, molds and engraving tools and all of that, you know. It's it a lengthy process. It just leapt right out. Tries to cover his tracks. So the point being, what would have happened? if they would have obeyed the summons of the trumpet, pushed past their sinful fear, their fear of God's judgment, their fear of the death that surely awaited them, what would have happened if God enabled them by His Spirit, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, to push past their fear and embrace the delight of fear? and go up on the mountain. They would have seen the glory. They would have listened to His voice. They would have heard about the design of this new Eden. It's not just about the laws. Listen, the Eden tent is all about, the whole sacrificial system is about overcoming this law. They were terrified because of the law. We can't keep this. And so what does God give Moses on the mountain? He gives him a way of overcoming the problem. The problem is you are sinful people and you can't dwell in the presence of a holy God. Don't worry, I've got this under, I've got a plan, people. That's what the Lord was trying to tell them. I've got a plan to handle that. So I want you to come up onto the mountain so I can tell you all about my plan. I want to share with you the gospel. I'm not just trying to give you the law. He brings Moses up and gives him the gospel. 
He brings Moses up and says, you're going to create this sacrificial system whereby you can look forward to one who can pass into death and come out again and offer the forgiveness of sins. But instead, because they don't fear the Lord enough to obey His summons and they're just afraid of His judgment, they end up sinning and rebelling and creating an idol. So that kind of, I feel like that really well illustrates this difference between this sinful fear of being afraid of God and fearing the Lord enough to trust His Word and to go, hey, look, being in my presence might seem like it's going to kill you. And in a sense, it will. <laughs> but I am going to make you in such a way that being in my presence will only kill the dying parts of you. I want to remake you in such a way that being in my... That you are so... You were filled with the cancer of sin. And what God is saying is, I want, I'm like radiation therapy. It's terrible. It's agonizing. But if you stay in my presence long enough, all the cancerous sin that's a part of you will be destroyed. And all that will be left is the healthy core that I will sustain through that. And you will go into remission from sin. <laughs> and I will sustain you. I'll sustain this, this heart within you. So this sinful fear is the fear that flows from sin. And it's not, a, it's not as though we should not be afraid of God's judgment at all. We're sinners. And we know that if God were to give us justice, we would perish. But that creates a certain kind of fear that makes us what? If all we knew about God was that He is absolutely He's the absolutely holy judge of sin, if that's all we knew about Him, that's all the Israelites kind of get at this point because they can't push past it. If that's all we knew about Him, what do we do? What do the Israelites do? They flee. They run away from Him. Sinful fear is that fear which we experience and drives us away from God. But the right fear, the fear of the Lord that He wants to build in us is a fear that obeys the summons of the trumpet and goes up the mountain. It's a fear that when we feel it, Though we know we're facing something far greater and beyond our control, we can't look away. We're pulled and drawn towards this uncontrollable God. And, we, and that will stop us from making gods that we can control. It's the fear of the Lord. So the, fe the sinful fear comes from what? It comes from a misunderstanding of who God is. We just don't, we don't know enough about Him. We don't know, we, we, if we only knew Him as the judge and as our Creator to whom we have to give an account 
and we know ourselves as sinners, all we're going to do is push away from him. And so his entire goal is to reveal more and more of himself. And he does that through this place, through, through an exodus. Because what do they do? They rebel. They worship the bull. They worship the calf. They rebel against God. They break the covenant. And God gets angry. Moses gets angry, comes down, smashes the tablets. But what does Moses do? He goes and he prays for the people. And he says, listen, take me instead of them. Kill me instead of them. And the Lord says, hey, listen, I'm going to turn away my anger. I'm, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill them. But I'm not going to go with you because I'll destroy you. <laughs> I can't be in the middle of you. And so then what does Moses do? I need to know more about you. I, I, I'm, I'm out of things to pray here. He runs out of things to pray. What do he, he prays? Uh, Lord, I, I know that you are, I know that you care about your reputation, so don't kill them because the Egyptians will think, you know, you brought them out here to kill them. And then all the words, you remember um, just between here and Sinai, just between the Red Sea and Sinai, they already said, hey, did you just bring us out in the wilderness to kill us? Like, and they're already saying these things. And so the Egyptians and the nations, they're all going to look and they're going to say, yeah, he did just bring them out in the wilderness to kill them, apparently. But you care about that. So he prays and he says, also, you made a covenant with our ancestors that you would bless this people. And so he banks on the things that he knows about God, but he's kind of run out of what to say to God in order to get him to renew this covenant. We need this covenant. We need you to go up in the midst of us. You're, you, yes, you're, you're a destructive force to our sin, but you're also the only thing that makes us different. You're the only thing that gives us life. This holiness, your holiness is at the, it's like the sun. At the same time, it's the source of our life. You know, the sun is the source of all life on the, on the planet. And, you know, uh, the, the light beams down, it goes in the plants. Animals eat the plants, we eat the animals. Life comes into us. We live by the light of the sun. It's, God's, it's, it's kin to God's holiness. It is the source of all life. But what would happen if you got into a rocket ship and flew towards the sun? With the nature that you have right now, what would happen? Eventually, you would just burn up. You would not be able to get close before everything just burned up. But God wants to give us a new nature. Uh, got any comic book nerds? Anybody like comic books? Anybody like Superman? I don't know if you know this about Superman. He is solar powered. He's powered by the sun. His powers come from the sun. And so what that means for Superman is that he has a nature that the closer he gets to the sun, the more powerful he actually becomes. So he, so he can actually go, if, if he were to go live inside the sun, that would be the most powerful he could ever become. You know? And God is saying, I want to give you a nature like that. I want to give you a nature <clears throat> that can dwell within my holiness and experience it as life. I want to pour my life into you in such a way that it makes you more and more invulnerable, more and more glorious, stronger and stronger. And don't you quake before the idea 
of God offering that kind of life to you? Peter says, we have become partakers of the divine nature. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden wasn't magic, but it represented eating God's own life, partaking in His divine life. That this is eternal life, Jesus said, that you know me, that you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You know me. You partake of my divine life. Now, I don't know about you, but I start to tremble. That's, I tremble at the goodness of that more than I tremble at the idea of it burning me up. The idea that he would give his own, his own, I don't have the capacity. I don't have the kind of nature that can contain that kind of life. But he wants to give me that. He wants to give you that. And that's what we misunderstand about God. The real fear of the Lord comes, the real right fear comes not from an experience of His fearful uh, judgments, but Jeremiah 32 and 33 says this. Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40. It's about the new covenant. So we just saw the establishment of the old covenant. And it wouldn't, they couldn't go up on the mountain. They didn't have the nature fit to do it. And so we need a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah describes the new covenant in this way. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may Fear me forever. So, is the new covenant in Jesus about fear? Should we fear the Lord? Yes, the essence of the new covenant is the fear of the Lord. I'll give them a new heart, and the essence of this new heart, this, what, is this, what, is this, what is the nature of this new heart? It is a heart that fears me. It's a heart that trembles before me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. See, he's going to do exactly what Moses said that he wanted to do at Sinai for the Israelites. He says the new covenant is going to do it. How? How is it going to do it? Jump down to 33 verses 8 and 9. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear who shall hear, what shall they hear? Of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. He says, tremble before my goodness. Quake 
before my gentleness. He is, he is saying, I am not just a volcano. I am a gentle volcano. I am a kind hurricane. I am a lowly forest fire. You see, the essence, the, what, what, how, what's the overlapping, what is the nature of fear itself? We experience fear in response to things we cannot control. That is what right fear and sinful fear have in common. It is a response to what we cannot control. Sinful fear runs away and tries to control God. Sinful fear sees God the judge, sees, doesn't understand that He's wanting to forgive and do good to you, and so it flees and tries to make a God that it can control. Right fear says, I cannot control you. I cannot control, I cannot stop you from doing good to me. No matter how much I sin, no matter how much I rebel, you're just going to keep doing good to me. And it's a fearful forgiveness. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, With you there is forgiveness. Therefore, therefore you ought to be feared. Why is God's forgiveness a fearful forgiveness? Because He doesn't just write your sin off. He doesn't just pretend it never happened. Sin has created a debt. Sin has created this relational gap between you and God. And He can't just say, ah, don't worry about it, and remain just. He is the just judge. And so the way He deals with our sin, the way He goes about forgiving it, is to put flesh on Himself, to prepare a body for Himself. A body you have prepared for me. I have come to do your will. The writer of Hebrews quotes Jesus, says, saying quotes about Jesus. I have prepared a body for Myself. And what did I prepare this body to do? I prepared this body to come down, and I, it, it's like the tent of Eden. I have brought this body down to bear your sin. I carry. This is what, he, this is what the Lord says to Moses. I carry iniquity, transgression, and sin. I'll carry it. I'll carry it. you there is forgiveness with you there is the carrying of sin therefore you are feared therefore I will fear you God's unstoppable love is a greater motivation for fear than his judgment because his judgment he would not let his commitment to justice get in the way of his commitment to doing good to you. And so he took the sin on himself so that he could be both just and the justifier of the guilty. There's a verse in Proverbs 
The judge who acquits the guilty or punishes the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. They're abominable. What is, the, what, is, what is an abomination? It's something you fear to look at. It's something so distorted and so inhuman, so twisted that you can't look at it. And he says, to forgive, to, to acquit the guilty or to punish the righteous, something has to be twisted and broken beyond your ability to look at it. Isaiah in chapter 53 says that when Jesus took on flesh, he was twisted. He was marred beyond the semblance of a human being. When you looked at him, he looked inhuman because he was being twisted for our sin, being broken, so that God became an abomination to himself to acquit the guilty. He took on, he, the righteous one, took on the punishment so that he could acquit us, the guilty. Now, what does that do to your heart? <laughs> it makes you quake at his fearful forgiveness. That's how determined he is to do you good. And so, don't be afraid to fear the Lord. Fear Him for His fearful goodness. Fear Him for His fearful forgiveness. Fear Him for His fatherly love and care and concern. And that will make all other fears go away. If He is that determined to do good to me that He would bear my sin, how much more, if, if together He's given us Christ when we were yet His enemies, how much more will He not together with Him give us all things? It is my delight to fear the Lord and the spirit that he gives us. And Paul, Paul says, the spirit that he gives us is not a spirit of slavery that we should fear. Sinful fear. But it's a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Dada, Father, to the maker, the creator, of the universe, the one who wove reality with his voice says, call me daddy. Rejoice and tremble. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, cause us to rejoice and tremble. To see your fearful forgiveness. To see it so clearly that all the other things that threaten to bring fear into our lives, all the other things that want to lurk on the edges of darkness beyond our control and threaten to undo us, we tremble not for them because we know their end is sure. We know the end that you will make of them because you bore our sins in Christ. You, you dealt with our sins and no force of darkness or evil, no fearful thing that threatens and wants to make us anxious has any power over us. You've disarmed all the powers that would try to terrify us in the night. You have defeated death itself, the great fear, the fear that has hung over the world since the beginning of the rebellion against you. You have swallowed it up forever.
in Christ cause us to tremble before you and to delight to fear your name. Through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen.